Hello and welcome to Line by Line. Two guests, three pieces of writing and some close attention to the exact flavour of words used and the manner in which they've been put together. Our broad theme this time is food and cooking and with me to assess our three pieces of writing are two very discerning palettes. A woman who has a second name but doesn't really need it, the writer and cook and shaper of British eating habits, Nigella Lawson, author most recently of Cook, Eat, Repeat and the award-winning novelist Aminata Fauna. Her most recent novel is Happiness, and her most recent book, a collection of essays called The Window Seat. If you listened before, you'll know that I usually serve up all three courses, but we're trying a variation, this time a kind of potluck dinner approach instead. We've each chosen a passage, and as usual, we've got them blind. Um, Guests might recognise the source of the readings we're looking at, but... They aren't told them in advance. It's not a test or a trap. It's just an attempt to put the words before reputations for a while, at least. You'll hear a reading of all three pieces. But if you want the text in front of you, hit pause now and you can find them at linebyline.substack.com. And you can subscribe there, too, if you don't want to miss the next episode. Anyway, uh, let's get started. Um, Nigella, I don't know whether you want to give any context for your passage. It doesn't really need any, but well, where is it? Uh, well, in a way, I think I should say it is a diary extract. That's all we need to know, I think. So let's hear it. I wake early as ever, but at my lowest ebb. The long summer days have been a torture to me. The fetid summer haze, the ugly light, the vicious colours, the fermenting air. I long for crisp autumn and winter dawns, the air once again pure and icy, the light clean and Nordic. Once out of bed, my mood changes. There are yet more signs of a shift in the season. A hint that autumn is well and truly here. The chestnut trees in the lane outside are changing to a mottled gold. The dahlias are out, and the greengrocer has plums. Baskets of victorias, and a wicker box of greengages. Yes, there are more interesting plums than the victoria. Sweeter, thinner-skinned, and more sauterne-like. But Vicks are good all-rounders providing rivers of sweet juice. They make a serviceable jam. There are few finer ways to start a winter's day than with frost and sourdough toast with plum jam. And anyway, if you let a Victoria soften to the point of translucence, it will have something of a honeyed sweetness and is good enough to eat as a dessert fruit. Today is a summer's day lived whilst thinking of a winter night. A day for making good things for later in the year. Jam, of course. Jolly pots of jewel-hued fig and plum. But this year, something different, too. I have always loved the Chinese plum sauce that comes with crisp-skinned duck and soft, warm pancakes. It has something of the night about it. Mysterious, dark, intriguing. You imagine the recipe to be secret written in Chinese characters on browning parchment, the result of centuries of kitchen alchemy. Now, do you want to speak to it, first of all? Why why did you um, pick that passage? I liked the balance between 
a, a slight confessional mood that opens up, I, I feel, to include the reader. It, and I did, obviously, I should say, like that bad-tempered, slightly tantrumy staccato start. What interests me about this is how it approaches food, conjuring up food in the reader's imagination. Because, yes, taste is mentioned, but really, it it's really relies more on slightly evocative language about the look of the ingredients. So say the, the translucence. I, I feel that not attempting to tell us exactly how everything tastes, but it's sort of setting out its stall with images. And, of course, towards the end, I, I, I'm not sure that I would say... Uh, that it's intensely lyrical, but it plays with lyricism as if to speak in a shorthand to the reader. I thought it was, I think it's definitely lyrical because when you get to jolly pots of dual-hued fig and plum, I immediately, that made me think of um, Keats. It reminded me more of rather old-fashioned children's books. And it has that that sort of orderliness and comfort. And I felt that it did read as a, an exercise in self-soothing for the author. So I uh, suppose... You've chosen, really... an, you've chosen another Keatsian word. <laughs> um, jelly's soother than the creamy curd. Um, yes. I, I, think, I think the Eve of St. Agnes is sort of hovering somewhere for this, this writer. Aminata, what did you think? Uh, I thought it was, I could taste the jam. <laughs> I could taste the plum jam by the time I got to the end of this piece. And I think, you know, I agree with Nigel. It starts off in this staccato way and, and, and becomes more lyrical. And if you look at the choice of words at the beginning, torture and fetid and ugly and vicious. And those are not words that I would associate with summer because I'm a summer person. And I, I couldn't guess at the writer, but I can only assume them to be from the extreme norths of Europe. And then the sentence, and the sentences are very short in that first paragraph, and the paragraph itself is very short. And then the sentences begin to get longer, and as you've both said, more lyrical. Um, I think the sentence that evokes this piece best for me is, a summer's day lived whilst thinking of a winter night. Because it is about that transformation, not just of seasons, but of mood. Um, you were nodding along to that, Nigella. Yes, that's... yes, and I think that you can sense the author's relationship with food, that it is something that bolsters a sense of self. And yet it is really much more of a picture being painted rather than going through, you know, the physiology of taste or an essence or telling you how to make a plum jam yes <laughs> but that made she me does laugh. Have those... some of it made me laugh i mean i i love the words they make a serviceable jam which is somehow to... it's very much <laughs> don't get your expectations up isn't it yes i wanted to talk about that because i've put a circle around it because i thought we've had this you know this is all an um, an ode to plum jam and then I thought serviceable was slightly curious there. So you think she was being playful or he was being playful? 
Because I think it's, there are a few finer ways to start a winter's day than with frost and sourdough toast with plum jam. So I thought, oh, so it's a bit more than serviceable. <laughs> yes, but I feel that there's something almost arch about the use. It's sort of let's not get carried away here. And I think also, I suppose, rather unfairly, the jam has to get slightly pushed out of the way for the mysterious dark promise of plum sauce. I liked very much um, it has something of the night about it, but it's been it's been slightly destroyed, that phrase, ever since Anne Widdicombe yes. used it about Michael Howard. Yeah. So it's I become was... rather <laughs> it's become rather that's, comical. That's exactly what came to mind when I saw it, something of the night but about it. But don't you it. think also that is about, to me it has very English tone and it's slightly getting almost operatic about the other um, do you recognise this Aminata? I don't. I don't recognise no. it. So, Nigella, will you tell us who it well, is? Well, yes, and I don't know whether this was quite within my remit, but it's from Nigel Slater's Kitchen Diaries. Ah, oh. and I wanted to choose some food writing rather than your know, food is in novels, for example, is used often very differently. You know, Anne Tyler you know, said, well, this is not that she was enormously interested in food, but it was the shortest way to give you an insight into a character, how they cooked and how they ate, whether there was conflict with others around the table. And so I I suppose I, I wanted to choose something that wasn't writing about food as a device, but writing about food as a discipline. In its own right, yeah. Yes. So he's not. Uh, it's Nigel Slater. I don't think he fits. Uh, well, I suppose he fits your your prediction, Aminata, of somebody from a northern climate. Yes. Um, <laughs> I like that opening though from that um, because that that pile up of words, torture, fetid, ugly, and vicious, all about summer, completely counterintuitive yes. for most of us. Mm. Well, um, as someone who you know is a bit of a sunphobe, obviously it spoke to me particularly uh, piercingly. But of course, now you've said that. Uh, that it is Nigel mm. Slater. I think of Nigel Slater cooking on television, and I think of how what a tactile cook he is on mm. television. So that um, the crisp skinned duck and the soft warm pancakes. I can imagine him saying that while mm. constructing that dish and and sort of almost stroking them. One thing that's interesting here is, I mean, and that, that you have to talk about throughout is that descriptions of foods mostly come down to nouns, don't they? Because in describing the taste of something, you either have to go to something that tastes different or you have to go to the thing itself. If you're trying to describe what a pea soup tastes like, you're going to say it tastes intensely pea or something, <laughs> or you're going to go to something else. And he goes here to sauternes yeah. and honey, which are, which are sort of fair analogies for the taste of a plum. Yes, it's more but like a green moving- gauge, isn't it, though? That's more, slightly more like a green gauge. I think I guess that, so. that yes. honeyed uh, sweetness, but I well, think, I think also you talk- have to evoke yeah. it. So you have to have metaphor. You have to paint the picture so acutely that the reader's compelled to try and imagine what the taste is. Don't you think there's another quality to this as well, which I think is true of all of the passages we've got here, which is that appetite and taste are exigent they they are demanding they're sort of rather stern you mm. know he's 
he's very categorical about what Victoria plums are and how there are others that are better. And yes. he's establishing that. And there's sort of a sense that there's no arguing about this, which you get very often in descriptions of food. I was thinking, Aminata, this short story you wrote called Scotch Broth. Oh, yes. Uh, where you use the making of a soup. And it's a very touching story. It's essentially about a man who doesn't cook or, or I mean, he does cook, but he hasn't made scotch broth. And he's looking after a small child who wants scotch broth. He first of all gives him Campbell's soup, which is hopeless. And the child just says that won't do at all. And then he attempts to make a scotch broth and has no idea how to do it. And that doesn't do at all and has to be thrown out. And then finally... They combine together to work out how to construct this soup. The, the food there is working as a device, I think, as, as Nigella said, isn't it? It works very well as a device to tell you how these characters are growing closer together. Yes, I use, in all my uh, work, I've used food a great deal to, as Nigella says, to tell us about a character and to bring people, you know, together or apart, depending on, on the relationship. And in Scotch Broth, it's definitely something that takes, brings them together. Actually, I, it's one of those ideas that you get because of something that happens in your own life, you know, and it's about way, the way that children uh, move between carers and whether one carer can, you know, can evince the level of care that that child requires. And it's very often in producing the food that the child knows. So this man is trying to make a scotch broth for the child, that the child will both evoke memories of the mother, but also soothe the child and they work on it together. And actually in, in happiness, I set myself the challenge of seeing if a food lover could fall in love with somebody who didn't care at all about food. Because I've often wondered if that's remotely possible. <laughs> and the character actually is the, the man who begins in uh, Scotch Broth, eventually became the main character of Happiness, by which time he's a fully-fledged foodie and can cook very well indeed, in fact. <laughs> OK, well, let's go on to uh, the second extract, which I've picked. And this is about exigence too. Um, it comes from a short story. He's making his lunch, essentially. And um, he is very, very particular about the way in which it's made. The first thing to do was to lock the door. Now nobody could come at him. He deployed an old herald and smoothed it out on the table. The rather handsome face of McCabe, the assassin, stared up at him. Then he lit the gas ring and unhooked the square flat toaster, asbestos grill, from its nail and set it precisely on the flame. He found he had to lower the flame. Toast must not on any account be done too rapidly. For bread to be toasted as it ought, through and through, it must be done on a mild steady flame. Otherwise you only charred the outsides and left the pith as sodden as before. If there was one thing he abominated more than another, it was to feel his teeth meet in a bathos of pith and dough. And it was so easy to do the thing properly. So, he thought, having regulated the flow and adjusted the grill, by the time I have the bread cut, that will be just right. Now the long barrel loaf came out of its biscuit tin and had its end evened off on the face of McCabe. Two inexorable drives with the bread saw, and a pair of neat rounds of raw bread, the main elements of his meal, lay before him, awaiting his pleasure. 
The stump of the loaf went back into prison. The crumbs, as though there were no such thing as a sparrow in the wide world, were swept in a fever away, and the slices snatched up and carried to the grill. All these preliminaries were very hasty and impersonal. It was now that real skill began to be required. It was at this point that the average person began to make a hash of the entire proceedings. He laid his cheek against the soft of the bread. It was spongy and warm, alive. But he would very soon take that plush feel off it. By God, but he would very quickly take that white fat look off its face. He lowered the gas a suspicion and placked one flabby slab plump down on the glowing fabric, but very pat and precise, so that the whole resembled the Japanese flag. Then on top, there not being room for the two to do evenly side by side, and if you did not do them evenly you might as well save yourself the trouble of doing them at all, the other round was set to warm. When the first candidate was done, which was only when it was black through and through, It changed places with its comrade, so that now, in its turn, lay on top, done to a dead end, black and smoking, waiting till as much could be said of the other. Now, this makes me laugh a lot, and I I partly chose it, of course, Nigella, in homage, because you have written at great length about toast (laughs) and recipes for toast and and, (laughs) and indeed Nigel Slater has as well and toast is a sort of um, it is a marker food isn't it for so many people and indeed how they have it is a sort of marker of their own identity exactly how they want it done Uh, and this passage just makes me laugh a lot uh, in part because of the insane exactitude of the way this person wants to make his toast. Nigella, I don't know whether you... Had you encountered this before? No, I hadn't. I mean, I have to say, I didn't I didn't trouble myself entirely to think who it might be, simply because I thought then I would start, you know, I'd think about that rather than the writing too much. I, at first, I felt it was comic, and then I found it slightly uh, disturbing. I mean, it's a very different way of, of thinking about food than... Um, an Slater extract, rather than coexisting with food, it is really very warlike. It's an act of aggression. It's about, it's about beating the food into submission. It's purportedly about desire, but it's really more about disgust. Yeah, no, it's that. Um, but he would very soon take that plush feel off it, by God. But he would very quickly take that fat white look off its, fo- I off know, its face. But even, I mean, if that was terrible, but even this, you know, the description of the stump, I did laugh about the description about all these preliminaries were very hasty and impersonal. When it is anything but that, the completely obsessive and dictatorial attention to detail, which then really turns into a sort of little infected rant. I think I think that's the that is one of the jokes that yes. that paragraph all these preliminaries were very hasty and impersonal oh, yes. is is just queuing you up isn't yes. it for that explosion of madness really I mean who could have such an emotional Oh I can understand um, the emotional um as into people are very emotionally attached to the way they customarily make or eat things after all it's it's it, it's how you interpret the world as well you're and but there is certainly a school 
of very strong opinion holders, which is there is a right and a wrong in food. Which yeah, is no, it's just it's more the hostility to the raw materials. No, the hostility to the raw materials is. But then I I wondered too how much I mean the stump of the loaf. I wondered too whether he was also meant to really be so unengaged with the essence of food itself, because in a way, the, the, the bread, he refers to the pith of a bread. Now, there's no part of bread that is like pith, other than if it's a white loaf of colour, because its pith is bitter. Oh, I think, I think pith isn't bad. Aminata, what did you did you well, recognise this? I, I think I can guess, because it's so writerly, okay? And let me tell you what I enjoyed so much about it. I mean, when I began reading it, I did think, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> but what there is at the beginning, there is this, there's a misdirection, right? So the first thing to do was to lock the door. Now nobody could come at him. And then there's mention of an assassin. So you think, my God, my goodness, what is going on here? Right. That perhaps something sinister is about to unfold. And then what the writer does is he talks about making a piece of toast. And, you know, making toast is at once the most banal thing, but I think it is one of those cooking moments where people can really disagree. I mean, the argument's over toast sweat. What is toast sweat? Toast sweat is if you put the toast straight onto the plate and the um, conversation... (laughs) Is created beneath it. And I know my husband gets really, really upset about toast sweat and the toast has to go in the toaster. <laughs> I've but, never heard then, it described like that, but now <laughs> forever I, in the future I, be toast sweat. <laughs> there was a whole episode of Fraser devoted to toast sweat. This is how I have the word. And then, you know, our toaster gets adjusted with each to different settings, depending on whose toast it is. So lots of thought goes into toast. But anyway, so first of all, there's the misdirection, right? Then what he's doing after that is, if it's who I think it is, is he defamiliarizes. So he uses all the words you wouldn't expect to be used about toast with toast. And the the ones I enjoyed the most, but in that kind of writerly way, I mean, because it is... Is a rather shocking piece. And it sort of, well, I don't know, it tilts to absurdism. So in the end, I came down on the side of humour. But he now says, you know, the long barrel loaf, its end evened off. Now we're into sort of shotgun, two inexorable drives, the bread saw, the raw bread, the stump of the loaf, prison. I mean, all these are completely defamiliarising words that you would never use. So, it, you know, you can't do anything but really, really concentrate on reading this at, at, at exactly where we are doing now. You know, line OK, by I'm going to have to ask you, what's your guess? I think it's Beckett. It is Beckett. It yeah. is Beckett. It Beckett. is Beckett. It's from a, it's, uh, it's from a sh- short story called um, Dante and the Lobster, in which and the, this character, Bellacqua, makes toast and he's very, very exacting and he buys a lobster while he's out shopping for his landlady. Do you know, there's a wonderful thing that that Beckett once said, you know, if, if you were told to guess who said this, you would really be hard-pressed to think it was him, which he said, there are no more hopeful hours than the first four hours of a diet. Extraordinary. <laughs> 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 so he obviously gained is- a lot of thought. He, want, he obviously 
cared about keeping that gaunt look up. Well, he cares about appetite. You get, you get, mm. I mean, there, there is awful food in Waiting for Godot, isn't there? Um, it's a sort of shriveled radish, I think. And yes, a, but and there's a not. kind of wizened carrot. But the idea, but it, it still matters to them that they have a meal in yes. Waiting for Godot. And Crap's last tape, the banana is an object of, he peels a banana and eats it with enormous relish. So I think he sort of cared throughout. This is it a does, much but more... It's making food ridiculous. It's taking a food as well that really for most people would be thought of as a source of comfort into something that is both ridiculous and, is, you know, con- I feel there's contempt from him towards the bread and it's like contempt how <laughs> well, he except, comes across it, as this... Um, except he goes on, Nigella, he goes on, he takes these... These two charred rounds of bread, uh, you you oh. learn how, what he pastes on them. He claps them together and he goes out to the ch- local cheese shop mm. to buy gorgonzola. And he has a huge row with the man in the cheese shop because the gorgonzola isn't green enough. Uh, and then he sort of settles for it and mm. puts it together. And he finds it's to his taste. And he's, he describes this in the end. He said his teeth and jaws had been in heaven splinters of vanquished toast spraying forth at each gnash. It was like eating glass. His mouth burned and ached with the exploit. And I think he means yes, that. Yes, I feel you know, much when better you... now because I was worried <laughs> about the fact that although this was about eating as it were, the perfect meal, there was no sense of gratification or appetite in it. Yes, so I feel much better about. now about where it ended actually mm. i would have loved to hear about the gorgonzola but i realized time is you know we, we can't do it all but it was done to a dead end black and smoking and i never got the impression he was actually going to eat this no no he eats it and he eats it with a sort of absolutely masochistic pleasure which i think is true of some kind of foods you know and it's true of it's true of some kind of cheeses isn't it that people absolutely like the fact that you get that acidic oh i love it when it burns and- the when it burns the roof of your mouth I mean, I slightly chose this because there is a weird link with the uh, Lestrigonians chapter of Ulysses, which is where Bloom gets hungry in the middle of the day. And it's a brilliantly written chapter in which ideas of food just start to permeate everything he looks at. He is a metaphor of food because he's hungry and he ends up eating a gorgonzola sandwich. Joyce says this fresh, clean bread with relish of disgust, pungent mustard, the feety savour of green cheese. Mm. Yes, but and I, I think feel the- both that and this passage, in a way, it, I almost feel protective of the food because I feel that it's almost being ridiculed. That I, I don't know why. But I don't you think the feety savour of gorgonzola is great? I know it's a cliche, like it. yeah. cheese, and, cheese and feet, but I don't think it's a cliche at the time. And feety, because, Nigella, you very often use, in very interesting ways as it were, non-food adjectives about food yes. to give a better sense of what it's about. Well, I try to. As I, I think in a way sometimes you just have to evoke something. But I suppose I'm on the side of Nigel Slater, which is I feel it's about peaceful coexistence. But I, I think they – I mean, I, I happen to like them both. And Nigel Slater, oh, I like he's the tiger, the tiger that came to tea, you know. It's, mm. <laughs> yes. Um you know, it's that sort of mood. And this one evokes... Some people have a very complicated relationship yes. with food. I mean, I don't. I just love it. But some people have a very complicated relationship with food. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm sure this piece was written before we started thinking about all of that But um, as a society. But it does... 
it does evoke that sense of food as something which is both we both desire, but also sometimes feel the need to reject or we reject for other reasons. Yes, I suppose within this, without knowing what happens afterwards, it seemed to me that the desire was a sort of constant struggle rather than a reward because Tom left the reward out, which says something about him. Well, it, it also <laughs> comes it comes to one of Beckett's famous endings, this, because um, he takes the lobster back to his landlady. He carries it through the streets. He, he's um, He's unaware that it's alive until he gets it out and puts it onto the kitchen table, at which point it twitches. His landlady is delighted, of course, because she she doesn't want anything else. And he is horrified. And uh, she says she's going to put it in the pot and boil it alive. And he protests and she says, no, no, mm. that's the only way to do it. And the, the whole story finishes, well thought, Balakwa, it's a quick death, God help us. It well, is that's not. interesting. I would... But it is not, says Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Anyway, that that is a cue, I think, for the next passage, which is... Um, which also features a lobster. It seems to start mid-anecdote, is that right? No, it doesn't. It starts more or less at the beginning of the scene. A man has gone into a restaurant, um, one that he knows that comes with a good reputation, uh, and he is alone and he sits down and there's just one other man in the restaurant and he's intent on, on having a meal and enjoying it. I mean, I can talk about it a bit more later. I think that's all we need, actually, and then I, I can pick it up afterwards. Uh, no, I don't think you need to say anything more about it now. Let's hear the passage first. At this moment, the old waiter comes back, bringing with him my bottle. I can remember it now. It's an 88 Salimaye from a famous vineyard that will soon be on our side of the border. He serves it to me like that means nothing to him and I get the sense that he is bent on showing the great strength of character it takes for him to serve me this wine, like it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference to him whether or not the owner of the vineyard is bayonetting his son in the airplane factory right now. He peels the foil off the top of the bottle, and then he uncorks the wine in front of me. He flips my glass and pours me a little, and he blinks at me while I taste it. Then he pours me the whole glass and leaves the bottle on the table. He disappears for a moment, and then he comes back, wheeling in front of him a cart that's covered in big lettuce leaves and bunches of grapes, slices of lemon, all of which are crowded around a centrepiece of fish. The fish are clear-eyed and firm, but they look like something out of a circus. The waiter says to me, Well, sir, tonight we have the sole, the eel, the cuttlefish, and the John Dory. May I recommend the John Dory? It was freshly caught this morning. There are not very many of them, not very many fish, perhaps five or six, but they are neatly arranged, with the two eels curled around the edges of the display. The John Dory is lying on its side like a spiked flat of paper, the spot on its tail staring up like an eye. Of all the fish on the cart, it is the only one that actually looks like a fish and also the only one not giving off a vaguely dead smell. Now, I love John Dory, but tonight I find myself wanting lobster. And I ask about it, about the lobster. The old waiter bows to me and apologises, says that they have just run out. I tell him I will need a moment to think, and he leaves me with the menu and disappears. 
I'm pretty disappointed about that lobster, I can tell you, as I sit there looking at the dishes they have to go with the fish. They have, of course, what you would expect. They have potatoes several ways, salad with garlic, four or five different sauces to go with the fish, but all the time I'm thinking about the lobster, about how they have just run out. And then I think, my God, it would be awful if this man, this gloating man who is here reading a book, has just had the last lobster, the lobster that should have come to me, when I am not here to gloat. Tell us why you chose that, Aminata. Um, I remembered when I read this book, I remembered very clearly for years afterwards, uh, the scene. And it reminds me, or it brings to mind very much a lot of the things I write about, which is uh, people in extreme circumstances and the challenge of trying to carry on living, the, you know, to carry on any kind of normal life, but also to enjoy life, to carry on enjoying life when very difficult things are happening about you. And, you know, at the beginning of this extract that I've chosen, we have a hint of that, the wine from a famous vineyard that will soon be on our side of the border. And then there's another reference the owner of the vineyard is bayoneting his son in the airplane factory right now. I mean, that's a startling moment, isn't it? You're right. It starts with a hint that you have to pay attention to. Get. Yeah. You know, but then it bayonets you. El- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> something is going on. I mean, do you want me to say what it is or should we talk about um, the No, no. I then? just want to know what um, Nigella made of it before we do, before you reveal more. I, do you know, I found myself slightly derailed because I was so trying to, that's when I had to stop thinking. I was so trying to work out exactly what was happening, the wine, what was the wine. And did you look it up, the wine? Oh, yes, I didn't find it. So I thought, <laughs> um, is it a real wine, Aminata? I do know. I have not looked it up and I don't know, but it's a wine sorry, producing no. region. Yes, I, yeah, thought that's Nigella, I interrupted I thought, you. I was trying to work out where I thought it might be set, whether rightly or wrongly, I thought Beirut. You know, it is interesting because it it is about food, but yes, there's no mention of what the wine tastes like. It's, there, again, it seems to me about desire rather than necessarily appetite. That That's exactly the right feeling, I think. It is about mm. hunger and you know, loss, the, the, the hunger mm. and the loss are the same. This is a life that is no longer his, you know, just as that, Eric, just as the wine, the, um, the vineyard, um, and what's going on and whether that wine will ever be produced again and it will be on our side of the border. Uh, so it's about hunger in, in mm. the sense of uh, the emotion of loss. Um, it, it does, um, part of its effect comes from the fact that it is a very, it's a formal and quite old fashioned restaurant, it seems to me. I mean, the, you know, it is silver service, isn't it? The, you know, it's not a beach restaurant. I don't know. I, in my head, I saw it as one of those rather old-fashioned terraces where someone might oh, be looking right. out, which would be. I somehow 
thought of it. That, yeah, that is what it is. And it's set in the former Yugoslavia and in, right. in the co- mm. Yugoslav conflict. Yes. But what I, what I really like about the beginning of this is the character of the waiter who, you know, even while the world is crumbling around him, is continuing with the stateliness of his job, which is where mm. he gets, you know, one might think he was indifferent, but actually I read it differently. You know, what I see is a man who is retaining the dignity that in a war is lost to so many. They're both trying to hold on to the dignity of what life was before. And we have, and I like the words that the writer uses um, for the waiter and the pouring of the wine, you know, that all these one syllable words, he flips and blinks and peels. And it expresses that deftness with which somebody who really knows what they're doing. I don't think I've ever managed to open a bottle of wine without some struggle, you know, <laughs> along the way. But this is somebody who really knows what he's doing. So, you know, to me, I don't know if either of you two did, but it would be easy to see these two people as sort of, you know, pers- perhaps pursuing desires and appetites that are out of place in the setting, in the circumstances. And I'd be interested to hear if you did think that. But in the, well, what I saw in it was really two people trying to hold on to the dignity of ceremony and, and civilization and all that that brings when, um, when they're in the middle of a civil conflict. Yes. Once you've seen the word bayoneting his son in the airplane mm. factory, everything is coloured by that. And nothing is the same in the passage after it. Um, I, I have to say, I, I loved that he blinks at me while I taste it. Because um, I, I thought that little piece of attention to the to what the waiter is doing while the main character is doing. And and I, it's very exact that um, that sort of curious pause that waiters have to go through while they wait for you to do your own little pantomime of approval or disapproval i mean hardly but, it, but it's interesting disapproves. that and that you say it's about you know people carrying on with dignity because that description of his blinking while the man is tasting his wine to me i felt there was something not downtrodden in the sense of but something weary about it he's going through this presumably also, it's a, he needs to earn money and he's doing it. So he's also forced into this slight, they're acting out their parts. That's how I read it. And he um, goes I mean, off and comes back with his trolley and recommends the John Dory. I mean, there is that. Yes. He's in the, he's in the rhythm of what he does. Um, um, the Aminata, the yeah. reason I thought it was mid-anecdote was because of that very conversational tone around about then. Now... I love John Dory, but tonight I find myself wanting lobster and I ask about it, about the lobster. That um, very Mm. conversational repeat of the lobster is a very sort of spoken, you know, it's not a written sentence that it is a spoken sentence, isn't it? And also when he says, I'm pretty disappointed about that lobster, I can tell you. When you say mid-anecdote, do you mean what comes after this? No, I meant, you know, uh, I mean, I just meant that, it's, you know, it starts at this moment. So, you know, he's already started telling this story. Oh, yeah, in that sense. In the restaurant. I mean, it's, yeah. it's taken, you know, but there's been action before then, mm. but it is more or less simply arriving at the restaurant and sit, but being it, seated. But, I mean, is it third, first person narration throughout? Well, it's a braided novel. So you go between this man mm. and his daughter and this man and his daughter. And she's gone back to the former Yugoslavia after the wars. Uh, and this is his experience of being in the wars. And the man who has the lobster 
the gloating man who is here reading a book has just had the last lobster. So there's an element of surrealism in this novel of, or magical realism, depending how you look at it or think of it. But that's actually the deathless man. And the deathless man is a man who can't die, who keeps following the main character from place to place. So they eventually sit down to eat together. And the main character, uh, the protagonist, you know, addresses him as, are you here to tell me about my death? Are you here to tell me when, you're, when I'm going to die? So up until then, he can't enjoy his meal. He keeps eating it and they keep being served course after course after course. And then it's only when the deathless man says, no, I'm just here to have dinner with you, <laughs> that he can finally enjoy the meal. <laughs> Out of context, I read that as being a rather good account of that resentment you feel when somebody else takes the last thing on the menu. And you <laughs> yes. get, and, you know, you, we go through the charades. Oh, no, no, it's fine. You can have it. But inside, you're seething slightly, aren't you? <laughs> you're thinking you. <laughs> and, and having not been able to decide whether you wanted lobster or John Dory, suddenly mm. lobster is the only thing that um, you want to eat. So there is that sense, you know, going back to Nigella's first point about hunger. He's not ever going to be, it's going to take a long time for him to derive satisfaction from this meal. And I think we have that. We get sense of that in the language. The fish are clear eyed and firm, but they look like something out of a circus. Who is it? Who is it, Aminata? And where's it's the It's Taya Albrecht and it's the uh, tiger's wife. Mm. Oh, right, right. I haven't read The Tiger's Wife, but she's a very good writer, I think. Mm. Well, thank you. That's it. We're, we've done it soup to nuts. And I'm going to, I, mean, I need to go uh, off and eat now. <laughs> well, that's my final question to you, is what are you going to have for supper? Well, I, I'm about to do something to a pavlova base that I've got to write something about. So it rather depends how much pavlova I have. I think I might have a slice of bread without pith um, and some <laughs> butter and um, anchovy, anchovy on it. I, I think the pith is the best bit in the toast sometimes. But anyway, Aminata, what about you? What do you have? Well, uh, lobster. No, <laughs> <laughs> has made me want lobster. Yesterday, actually, I was out and about and reading these pieces and I was just looking for the kind of restaurant where I could sit down and eat some lobster. It really... You know, I think writing about food is about evoking memory of taste. If you can't evoke the taste itself, you evoke mm. the memory of the taste. And you and you produce the desire, you reproduce the desire in the reader because there's always that symbiosis between reader and writer. You know, exactly. readers bring, the, bring their knowledge to something. But I, I am, well, I'm not going to have lobster, but I think I'm going to make crab pasta now. What are you having, Tom? What are you having for supper? I'm going to roast some potatoes and I'm going to have it with a sauce that Ottolenghi makes with tahini and soy sauce mm. that you dribble over the top and it's absolutely delicious oh, I, so do I don't know what else I'm going to have with my roast potatoes but I've got a glut of potatoes so. <laughs> that, well, that sounds wonderful yeah. anyway thank you um, very much indeed both of you really enjoyed doing that and, and thank you so much for doing it thank you likewise My thanks again to Nigella Lawson and Aminata Fauna, and thanks too to my producer Ben Tullo and our reader Deli Siegel. Next time on Line by Line, the book reviewer John Self and the editor and journalist Ella Wakatama are going to be our guests. Not sure when exactly, but if you don't want to miss it, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to 
leave a review. It helps to get the word out. Till next time, goodbye. Goodbye.